If you have a Bible with you this morning, and like to follow along, we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. You can also use a phone if you like or anything. Uh, you also should be able to find the text in the order of worship. And today begin, we're beginning a new sermon series on the book of Galatians. Um, some of you remember, I, if you've been here a long time, I actually preached through Galatians about nine or ten years ago. And so one, one of the dirty little secrets, I don't know if it's a dirty secret of, of preachers, is sometimes you pick sermon series because you think the congregation needs it. Other times you pick sermon series because you need it. So I'll let you decide <laughs> as we go along <laughs> which. So hear the word of God from the book of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that we're, for, for those here who, who struggle with their faith, for those who struggle uh, with trying to be good and never feel like they're good enough, those who wonder if they're ever going to be uh, loved and accepted, I pray that today would, would, would change all that, that they would experience the love and joy of understanding the unconditional grace of Christ. I pray for myself. that you be in my head, and in my thinking, and in my heart, and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, I typically start with a question. I'm going to do the same thing today. Um, and really, the question uh, today is, is a question that sets up the whole series, and it's a, it's a question that we'll probably refer back to often as we look at this series. And so the question today is, is, as you think of your own life, which one of these are you? Are you a Pharisee, or are you a recovering Pharisee? By the way, those are your only two options. Remember, I used to be in sales. So in sales, it's not, in sales, you don't say, would you like to buy a car today? You say, would you like to buy the blue one or the red one? You're leaving here with a car. Which are you? Are you a Pharisee or are you recovering Pharisee? Now, it might be helpful. It should be helpful for us to define what I mean by Pharisee to, to begin with. What is a Pharisee? And the definition I, I came up with, basically, it's a Pharisee is someone who, who relies on his or her own goodness to gain God's approval or the approval of those around them, right? In, in other words, if, if someone asked you, for example, um, if, if you were to die and go to heaven tonight, why would God let you in? If your response is, well, I'm a good person, guess what? Pharisee, right? So Pharisees believe that their own righteousness is what matters and their own righteousness is what counts. And so they live their lives trying to make sure that other people see that and live their lives in order to, that, uh, that God would see that. Also, um, Pharisees tend to be smug. Remember the classic example of, of Pharisaism in the New Testament 
is in Luke chapter 18. Hear, hear this in verse 9 of chapter 18. Jesus says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, <laughs> extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? You know you're a Pharisee if you think you're better than other people. Like in any context. I remember in, in seminary, one of my professors was a man named Roger Nicole. He was from France, and he had the thickest accent I've ever heard of someone from France. I must, you, you would almost think he made it up. And I remember one day he said, I, I, I made this statement that I hate Pharisees. Well, I hate Pharisees. And he very calmly said, my brother, you have just outfell the Pharisee. What did he mean? Right? I think I'm better than people who think they're better than me. Guess what? That makes me a Pharisee. Right? Pharisees, so Pharisees can be smug. Pharisees can be self-righteous. Pharisees are fence builders. Right? What do I mean by that? You know, Judy and I moved to Seattle in 1997 to, to plant a church. And in the, in the process, we, we, right across the street from our house was a church that happened to meet on Saturdays, which means it would be open on Sundays if we would be able to rent it from them. And I, of course, went over to try and schmooze them. And they said, no way, ever. Is anyone ever going to rent our church? God made some miraculous things happen. Um, so that plus my schmoozing, they said, you can use a church. And I said, great, where do you brew coffee? And they said, <gasps> and I said, like, is there not a kitchen? Can we, if we want to put coffee during like services, where do we do that? And they're like, no, you can't have coffee in this church. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, coffee, caffeine is a sin. And I said, well, Presbyterians, not so much. And as we negotiated back and forth and with, with an incredible amount of schmoozing, they finally said, okay, you can bring coffee in from the outside, but you can't brew it here because we don't want to be implicated in the sin of coffee brewing. Now, really, they didn't want to be And to them, if, if you think drinking caffeine is a sin, that, that, that's actually okay. That's between you and God. But when you say, we don't want to brew it here because brewing here might lead to, to smelling it and smelling it might lead to drinking it, when drinking it is actually the sin, let's just build a fence around it, right? So Pharisees build fences. And Pharisee, you could be a Pharisee even if no one else knows, even, even if it doesn't affect. It, you know, I'm gonna tell, I told this story to, um, <laughs> to our music people this week, to Kim and Matt, and Kim's like, you can't tell that story in church, which of course to me, that's like, here, hold my beer, watch. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, this, this is one of those minor things that, that, that God uses, to, at least in people like me, to get my attention. So, so for several years, I was getting sick quite a bit. And, and one of the women in our church gave me this stuff called Core 24. What it is, 
is it's 24-hour hand sanitizer, right? It's like wearing gloves practically. I have it on even as we speak. So the the place where I use it the most is traveling through airports, right? Because airports are just nasty, right? The, 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 the airplane is sort of gross and the bathrooms are gross. And so it was about a year ago and I've sprayed my hands out. I'm getting ready to get on the plane and I'm just coated with Core 24. I have so much on my hands that I could probably heal people with it, right? <laughs> and I have to run to the bathroom. And so I run to the bathroom real quickly and then just as I'm leaving, I go over to the sink and acted like I was washing my hands. And then I left. Now, why did I do that? Not because I thought my hands were not sterile. I did it because I didn't want the other people around to think I was nasty. I was worried that people who I would never see again in my life would be judging me because they thought I was, you know, dirty or something. And so I went over and I acted like I was washing my hands. And, and in, the, in that moment, it hit me that that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They acted like they were washing their hands so people would think they were clean and everyone around them would think they were okay. But inside, they were dead. Dead, dead. So the question is, are you a Pharisee or are you a recovering Pharisee? A Pharisee just goes through life like that until you die a miserable person ultimately. A recovering Pharisee realizes over and over and over that it is not my own works, my own righteousness, my own goodness, what other people think about me, but it is what Jesus has done for me. It is Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' goodness, and what Jesus thinks of me, not other people. That's what's going on in the book of Galatians. The, the, the whole book of Galatians was written because there was a problem with that. Right? The apostle Paul had written, he, he had planted these churches in Galatia, which is, is somewhere in uh, middle of Turkey, modern day Turkey. And you know, the apostle Paul planted these churches on the basis of his gospel, which is by, that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works of the law. And then Paul went on to plant other churches, and while he was gone, some individuals came to that church called Judaizers, and basically said, so, so Paul's gospel that he preached to the Galatians to start the churches was, get this church, Jesus plus nothing is everything, right? If you trust Jesus, you get everything that you ever need. And some people came behind him and said, hey, you know, Paul, that's cool, we, we have to trust Jesus, everyone knows that. But really, if you want to be sure of your salvation, you need to add something. So they would say Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus works of the law, Jesus plus anything else. And Paul has heard that. It, the news has come to him that someone has come behind him, and instead of teaching the church Jesus plus nothing equals everything, they're starting to teach, teach Jesus plus something. And he has to address that. And ask you, if you want to know how serious this problem is, how, how it gets to the heart of what Christians call the gospel, this is the only letter that Paul ever wrote in which he does not say one way or the other in his opening address, I thank God for you. Paul writes churches that are crazy. Right? Think about the Corinthians. The Corinthians had every imaginable problem in the world. 
They had lawsuits. They had church conflict. They were fighting over worship. They had people who were, who were sleeping with their in-laws. They had all these crazy things going on. And Paul opens the letter by saying what? I thank God for you. Because what's happening in Corinth is the gospel is going into this really crazy place and it's changing people. And Paul comes behind and says, that, 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 that's not a good idea to do that. If the gospel's true, we don't do this. You know, he's, he's, he's shoring them up in the context of the gospel. But in Galatia, they've basically taken the gospel and thrown it out the window. And you've probably heard me say this before. What's interesting is most churches, the goal is to look like Galatia. The goal of most churches is to look like Galatia. What, and what do I mean by that? Well, the goal of most churches is to, that there be nothing, no messes, no conflict. Everyone would get along and everyone would act like they like each other. And as long as we do that, this is a great church. And if you read the New Testament, the great churches are the ones that are completely messed up. But the gospel is at the center of them. That's the problem in Galatia. Paul said, he doesn't say, he said, doesn't say, I thank God for you. He sort of jumps right in. And so we're going to look at two things this morning that are going to inform the whole book. Basically, the book revolves around two big questions. Where does Paul have the authority to say the things that he's going to say? Paul says some really harsh things in this letter to the Pharisees, to the Judaizers. So on what basis does he have authority? Um, and on the other hand, what is his gospel? Or another way to, to look at it is Paul is going to, to come at Pharisees very hard and confrontationally, and he is going to come at recovering Pharisees very graciously and mercifully. In other words, he, he wants those of us who are recovering Pharisees to be free in the gospel, not to be bound up by works of the law, not to wonder whether or not Jesus loves us. So we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at Paul's authority. We're going to look at Paul's gospel this morning. So notice what he says in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. To all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So what, why does Paul open the way he does? So first of all, he says, Paul, typical greeting um, in the ancient Near East, right? He said, Paul, an apostle. He's t- he immediately is giving his credentials. And what is an apostle? I mean, the, the, the very shortest definition probably of an apostle in the New Testament is someone who saw the resurrected Jesus and someone who was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. Now, if you remember, the apostle Paul was not part of the original 12. In fact, he was sort of a Johnny-come-lately, some might say. And why would people attack his authority? Well, have you ever, you ever watched TV? Like, I, I just finished watching a, a, a detective show, and the, the whole season was basically about people trying to undermine the credibility of the detective. Now, why? Because if they undermine the credibility of the, the detective, no one's going to listen to his arguments. No one's going to believe him in court. Or, or if they undermine his credibility, all the people that went into jail before under his testimony will be released. We see that in politics all the time. Instead of dealing with people's arguments, what do people do? If you can undermine the character or the authority of the person speaking, what they're saying doesn't really matter. And so apparently some people are saying, who is he? So, oh yeah, he's the apostle, Paul, air quotes. I was, I didn't see him. I didn't see him with Peter, James, and John walking around. 
I didn't see him going out with the 70. I didn't see him do anything. In fact, he's the guy who went around killing Christians. So you're telling us that when we tell you Jesus plus something is the way it should be, that you're going to actually listen to this other guy who used to kill Christians. That's the guy you're going to listen to. And so the way Paul starts this is different than any other letter, is he says, Paul, an apostle, and then he tells them exactly where his credentials came from. All right? So Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You know, Paul gives his whole gospel in this this uh, short passage that we have, and it, he sort of goes backwards, it looks like, because he talks about r- Jesus being raised from the dead, and then he works his way back to him dying for our sins. Well, why connect resurrection here? It's because Paul wants to remind them that he did have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Not by man, but through Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. Let me read you Paul's uh, portion of Paul's conversion story says but Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord so they're right in saying he killed Christians went to the high priest asking for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem now as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul, Saul, (laughs) I I imagine it's like that. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Later on, it says he's he's given to this disciple named Ananias, taken care of, and Ananias answers, Lord, I've heard many things about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So remember the two criteria. Witness the Lord, witness the resurrected Jesus. Check. Check direct commission from Jesus, check. Not from man, but through God and the Lord Jesus. So Paul has been given this. Now, one side note, I always ask people this. As you read through Paul's conversion story, let me ask you this. At what point did Paul choose Jesus? At what point did Paul ever say a sinner's prayer? At what point did Paul say, Lord Jesus, I pray that you forgive my sin? He didn't. Jesus chose Paul. He set his love upon him and said, Paul, I will show you how much you have to suffer for my name. You see, grace always starts with God's initiative. God took the initiative with Paul. Paul didn't figure it out and and logically work his way to a point where he said, well, you know what, Now, now that I think through it all, it makes sense. Paul became a follower of Christ because Jesus knocked him off his horse and told him the way it was going to be. If you feel like that's happening, that's actually the way it works. So on one hand, Paul establishes his authority with them. Not from man, but through God and through Jesus and the the one who is risen. And then the next place he goes is to the gospel. Notice what he says. He says, verse 3, grace and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So these words, grace and peace, on one hand, grace simply means unmerited favor, right? So he's extending to them by way of this letter, salutation, grace, God's unmerited favor. Peace is the byproduct of God's unmerited favor. So with the gospel, we, we receive the gospel by grace, and what the gospel does is make things the way they're supposed to be. That word peace in Hebrew would be shalom, and shalom means the way things are supposed to be. So he's saying right up front, if you want to understand the gospel, you have to understand that on one hand it's unmerited, on the other hand what it's all about is God turning things, making things the way they're supposed to be. And he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us for the present, from the present evil age. Now that, and at some level that's it. If the Galatians weren't so thick-headed and hard-headed, and if we weren't so thick-headed and hard-headed, Paul could probably just stop the letter there. Jesus gave himself for our sins, and we would be so rejoicing, we'd be so joyful, we'd be so thankful, our lives would be so changed that we'd, everything would change. But that, in a nutshell, that's it. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Now it's important to, to keep in mind, especially in the context of Galatians, when we think of sins, typically we think of badness. That Jesus gave himself for all the bad things that I've ever done. That's true. But also, especially in this book, Jesus not only gave himself for all the bad things you've ever done, he also gave himself for all the good things you've ever done to try and earn favor before God and before men. But C.S. Lewis writes quite a bit about the fact that our biggest problem isn't our badness. If you're a bad person, you actually know it. And you realize, I probably shouldn't be robbing banks or whatever your thing is. If you're a good person, isn't it a lot harder to, to think that you're a bad person because you think you're a good person? And Lewis would say our biggest problem isn't our badness but our damnable good works. Because we think somehow that is earning favor with God. And what the gospel says, what we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul, is nothing could be further from the truth. If you are relying on anything but the, but the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are relying on the wrong thing. So the, so the gospel is not just that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Did you notice to, to, he says to deliver us from this present evil age? Now is he saying to, to, to deliver us out of the world? I don't think so, because in Corinth he says if we, if, if we, were gonna be, if we weren't going to be around sinners, we would have to leave the world. So what does he mean here? I think it has more to do with this whole idea of eternal life. Remember back in, in John chapter 3, there was a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was the best example that Israel had to offer. He was a teacher of the law, he was blameless, he was a, he was a by all outward appearances, he was a great guy. He was a good guy. He was respected. He comes to Jesus at night, and before he can even ask Jesus a question, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Huh? You must be born from above. In other words, all of your goodness, all the things that you've accrued your whole life to, to earn favor with God count for nothing. 
The Spirit must come and give you a new heart. He must open your eyes. And remember, and right after that, it says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Now, eternal life doesn't mean only just life that never ends. In Greek, that phrase eternal life is ione zoe, which means life of the age to come, literally. And so what Jesus is saying, John is saying in in chapter 3, whoever trusts in Jesus actually gets the life of the age to come now. The life of the age to come, love, joy, peace, patience, all the things that you long for actually begin now. They begin when we trust Jesus. They begin imperfectly. They they, they, They take a long time to take root. But they begin now. In other words, for those who have trusted Jesus, you are delivered from being defined and and under the authority of this present evil age, and you live according to a completely different age. You, You dwell in the age of the life to come. And the last thing Paul says here, did you notice how he ends this? He says, to whom be the glory, he says, all this happens according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. So did you notice what Paul didn't say in any of this so far? He didn't one time mention works of the law. He didn't mention one time be good. He never says be good. What he says is that God has done everything. That in the gospel, it is all about grace. It is all about God doing 100% of the work. It's all about God initiating with you. It's all about the Son doing 100% of the work for you. It's even about the Holy Spirit giving you faith. Everything that we have in the gospel is given to God and is given from God. And because of that, God gets 100% of the credit, or in Paul's language, glory. We don't get the glory for having saved ourselves. We don't get the glory for how good we are. We don't get the glory for how much we love Jesus. God gets all the glory for that. And I'll close with this. You know, I was at a security seminar this for the past two days. I'm doing my thesis project on church safety and security. And on one hand, it was, it was incredibly interesting. I mean, on the other hand, it was quite a drag right, talking about shootings and bombings and stabbings for a weekend. Um, but one, there was one speaker who was actually good. His material was good, but there's one thing that he kept saying that just sort of it, it graded me. And he kept saying in the context of all of his talks, he said, ooh, I, I love Jesus. You have no idea how much I love Jesus. And I'd say, okay, good, cool, good. And he'd talk about some other stuff, and he'd say, at one point he said, I am obsessed with Jesus. I love him so much. I love him more than any other thing in the world. And I, and I sat there thinking, I don't. In other words, if you said, Tommy, do you, you love Jesus like that guy? And I'd say, uh-uh, not so much. I wish I did. Sometimes I love Jesus. Sometimes I don't. I don't think I'm ever obsessed with him. Mostly I'm obsessed with my own sin, my own self, the things that I want, my own selfishness. And if that's the case, if loving Jesus and being obsessed with Jesus is what it takes to to get into heaven and have a relationship with him, I am sunk. Here's the good news of the gospel. That your love for Jesus is not the thing that saves you. Your obsession with Jesus is not the thing that saves you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is obsessed with you. 
that you and I, sometimes we love him, sometimes we don't, sometimes we believe, sometimes we don't, but what never changes is his loving obsession with you. He loves you more than anything. How do you know that? Because he laid down his life for your sins. Anything else is a waste of time. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would just come and, and as we begin this series on Galatians, I pray that it would be a, a, a refreshing season of uh, just being reinvigorated by the gospel of your free grace. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.